we're using these in chapter 11, the four ways that David, because I know we want to talk about Bathsheba and we want to talk about the baby and we want to talk about this and that and this and that and this and that, but the focus is completely on David. David, David, David. This is David's story. And there are four ways in chapter 11 that David abuses his royal prerogatives. He doesn't lead his own armies into war. That's the first one. The second one is he takes Bathsheba. I told you last week, in the Hebrew, that is the word. He sends the messengers, and they took her. That's the Hebrew. You don't have to pretend it's anything else. Then there's the cover-up <coughs> cover when, when she turns up pregnant. And then the cover-up culminates in what? The murder of Uriah. He, as king, he orders that Uriah be moved up near the city walls and then abandoned to die. And that is exactly what happens. And Joab does this for David. And we know that Joab would not have a problem with that because Joab is the one who tricked Abner, lied to Abner, and murdered him. So we've seen already the character of, of Joab. And then <coughs> David is confronted by Nathan the prophet. That is just as important a part of the story as chapter 11. When Nathan comes and tells David the parable about the poor man who has nothing except one little lamb. And he raised the little lamb from birth, and he would walk around it. He, he, he viewed the lamb as his daughter and his child, and just, just all written in a very, you know, with a lot of, a lot of pathos. Just the, oh, and there's a rich man who wants to... Okay, I really don't know what's going on here. I've got everything turned off on my... I'm so sorry. One second. Good grief. I, I, I really don't. Well, I, I mean, the, the trouble is it interrupted the podcast recording. So anyway, I can cope with all of that. So the rich man is going, is entertaining somebody, and rather than take one of his own animals or something to slaughter and make dinner, he takes it from the poor man and... David is incensed. He's so angry. He says, bring that man. And Nathan, I view it as, I'm adding a bit here. Nathan spins on his heels and he says, you are that man. That's the quote. You are that man. And in that moment, David is confronted with the reality of the terrible things he has done. And being the story of David, the focus is on what will David do now? How will he respond to his own to his own sin? To his own sin. And I wanna I wanna start um, Back at verse 11, we got to verse 11 and a little bit beyond of chapter 12, 12, 11. 
This is what Yahweh says. Out of your own household, I am going to bring calamity on you. Before your very eyes, I will take your wives and give them to one who is close to you, and he will sleep with your wives in broad daylight. You did it in secret, but I will do this thing in broad daylight before all Israel. David brought violence into his house, and it's going to stay. That's a setup for what's coming. It is going to stay. David is setting up cycles of violence in his own household with his own children. And that's really very much what the rest of 2 Samuel is going to be about. Then David said to Nathan, I have sinned against Yahweh, which is a true statement. I have sinned against Yahweh. He has done terrible things, things that are so far beyond um, God's desire for any of us that you almost, you almost can't see the gulf. I have sinned against Yahweh. And Nathan says, Yahweh has taken away your sin. You are not going to die. God is a God of mercy and grace. Yahweh has taken away your sin, David. You deserve to die, but you're not going to die. He murdered a guy. You are not going to die, because, but, but because by doing this you have shown utter contempt for the Lord, the son born to you will die. And it's the first great tragedy in David's life, in David's household, and it's precipitated by him. And you might say to me, well, it isn't fair, you know, that, that a son should suffer for the sins of the father, but it happens in this world every day. Every day. Every day. There are, there's violence that, that goes out like ripples in a pond, capturing children and grandchildren and poisoning and... The first recipient of that is the son of David and Bathsheba's that is to be born. And it's a terrible thing. It's a tragic thing. It's inexplicable. I, I, I'm comforted knowing that the child goes to God, right? Death is nobody's end. But the focus isn't even on the child. The focus isn't on Bathsheba. The focus isn't on Uriah. The focus is on David and his relationship with God. That's the lens you have to see all of this through because the writer is going to keep pulling you back to that. I have sinned against Yahweh. Look at, if you will, Psalm 51. This is a famous psalm. And as many psalms do, there is a little subtitle up at the top. Psalm 51, 51, 51. That's a, you should know that number. I'm just saying right now, go ahead and make a little mark, put a little marker there, a little bookmark, and just say to yourself, I'm going to know what Psalm 51 is. Really, because there's certain, you know Psalm 23, right? You should know Psalm 22, 
because that's the one Jesus quotes on the cross, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? That's Psalm 22. This is Psalm 51, and look at the title. For the director of music, a Psalm of David. This is what's written on the scroll, right? When the prophet Nathan came to him after David had committed adultery with Bathsheba. Verse 1, have mercy on me, O God, according to your unfailing love, according to your great compassion. Blot out my transgressions. Wash away all my iniquity and cleanse me from my sin. For I know my transgressions and my sin is always before me. Against you, you only have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight. We harm other people, we sin against God. Sin is about our relationship with God. Harming others is about, is about our relationship with those in our lives or maybe those not in our lives. So you are right in your verdict and justified when you judge. Surely I was sinful at birth, sinful from the time my mother conceived me. All of us carry within us this, I used to call it, I guess I could still, this flaw in our moral, moral DNA. That's my metaphor, a moral DNA. We are born with this darkness in our heart that bends us towards sin throughout our lives and which we are unwilling to overcome. It is and from which we must be saved. Saved by whom? Saved by God. By, by God in the person of Jesus. That's what Christians call original sin. That's all, that's all that is about. And it is, as Chesterton said, the one Christian doctrine that is empirically proven. All you have to do is open your eyes and look at the world around you, and you can see the truth, that there's a darkness in the human heart. But that darkness doesn't win. That darkness is not the end. So David goes on, yet you desired faithfulness even in the womb. You taught me wisdom in that secret place. Cleanse me with hyssop. This is a brush type uh, plant from that part of the world. And I will be clean. Wash me and I will be whiter than snow. Let me hear joy and gladness. Let the bones you have crushed rejoice. Hide your face from my sins and blot out all my iniquity. Here's the famous line, create in me a pure heart, O God, and renew a steadfast spirit within me. Do not cast me from your presence or take your Holy Spirit from me. Restore to me the joy of your salvation and grant me a willing spirit to sustain me. Then I will teach transgressors your ways so that sinners will turn where? To God, back to you. Deliver me from the guilt of bloodshed, O God. <laughs> Who did deliver him from the guilt of bloodshed earlier in the book of Samuel, remember? Abigail did. He was riding to go slaughter, and she stopped that, that, that blood guilt in her ravine as he was riding off to go slaughter Nabal and all his men. 
You who are my God, my Savior, and my tongue will sing of your righteousness. Open my lips, Lord, and my mouth will declare your praise. You do not delight in sacrifice, or I would bring it. That echoes Micah 6, verses 6 to 8 and before. God does it. The sacrificial system is a temporary means to invite to an end. I call it a splint. But it's not the end. God's desire isn't all these animal sacrifices, really. What God really wants for us to do is to do justice, love mercy, and walk humbly with God. Micah 6, 6. You do not take pleasure in burnt offerings, David writes. My sacrifice, O God, is a broken spirit, a broken and contrite heart. You, O God, will not despise. You know, it, we all sin. Sometimes what we have done is hard for us to bear. Sometimes what we have done is hard for us to bear. But that broken heart, that saddened heart, is the path to repentance. To, to, path to repentance. May it please you to prosper Zion, to build up the walls of Jerusalem. Then you will delight in the sacrifices of the righteous and burnt offerings offered whole. Then bulls will be offered on your altar. But the focus is not on the sacrifices. It is on David. What? David does terrible, terrible, terrible things. But what, what redeems David? His repentance. He sees it. He acknowledges it. He repents. The Lord has taken away your sin, Nathan tells him. Now, does that mean that David is going to be spared the consequences of what he has done in a real world sense? It does not. And that sequence begins with the death of the child. Patty? Question online. Yeah. From Lynn. Does God withdraw his Holy Spirit from us? I always thought it was us humans who were away from God and the Holy Spirit. God does not withdraw his Holy Spirit from us. One way to see this, Lynn, is that is David before or after Pentecost? Is he before or after the the arrival of Jesus. The arrival of Jesus in Pentecost changes, changes everything. After, at Pentecost, we become the temple in which God dwells. That is not the case here. That is not the case here. So you have to kind of remember where you are in, the, in this story of God's redemptive work. So, after... He says, don't abandon me. It's like, what did he see in Saul? You could read it as, it's like when you ask me about the Lord's Prayer. Do not lead us into temptation. Like, is God going to lead us into temptation? No, it's a way of saying, please don't lead me into temptation. Saul moves further and further away from God, and that separation drives Saul deeper into darkness, which compounds whatever mental illness he has. 
That's what David doesn't want. He wants to stay. In the psalm, this, the psalm is about a man who wants to stay, who wants to be forgiven and, and recover the relationship with God that he had. And he's so easily, so easily tossed away, seemingly forever. But God says, no, you didn't. David says, I have sinned against the Lord. And Nathan says, the Lord has taken away your sin. You know, God, Romans eight twenty eight, nothing will separate us from the love of God. God's desire is to redeem and renew every single person on the planet. Too many Christians view themselves as gatekeepers, trying to decide who's acceptable in the body of Christ. Well, that is not our role. It is not the way God, did. God so loved the world that he gave his only son. All the families on the earth will be blessed, God told Abraham. Everybody, all, all, all. Does that mean all really do, in the end, want to be reconciled to God? I don't think so. Are there those who put themselves outside God's forgiveness because of their ultimate rejection of God? I think so. But not David. He's done these terrible things. I just, you, you just can't paper over them. It is the depth of his sin that creates the, the surprise and even the joy in his repentance. But it doesn't mean he will escape the consequences of his sin. Actions have consequences. There is a moral fabric in God's creation. A moral fabric in God's creation. It's not tightly woven, perfect, all like silk or something. You ever seen silk? Silk is all tightly woven and it's all perfect. It's more like burlap. Okay, and we can't always discern exactly, but actions have consequences. And you do something like this, it's going to have consequences. Any psychologist or, or sociologist will tell you that David has brought violence into his house and it's going to create wreckage. wreckage. And oh, the wreckage is going to be mighty. Verse 15. After Nathan had gone home, they struck the child, afflicted the child. That's that, I looked this up in a Jewish study Bible. I want to read some of this in their English translation of the Hebrew Bible. And they use the word afflicted here. Yahweh afflicted the child that Uriah's wife had born to David, and he became ill. David pleaded with God for the child. He fasted and spent the nights lying in sackcloth on the ground. Members of his household stood beside him to get him up from the ground, but he refused, and he would not eat any food with them. Commentators on this note that in this world, given who David is, he's got lots of wives, he's got a string of kids, the people of the palace are not going to understand why this one child, why does this one child matter so much? This world, only half of them lived past the age of five. You know as well as I, if, you, if, if only half the children lived past the age of five, you are... You're going to be cautious about how much you bond to any child. Every child born 
has only a 50% chance of making it past the age of five. But David is pouring himself out, pleading, refusing to eat. <sighs> he won't get up. They can't, they, they can't deal with David. On the seventh day after the child was afflicted, we, Bobby, how we should read this, the child died. And David's attendants were afraid to tell him that the child was dead, for they thought, well, while the child was still living, he wouldn't listen to us when we spoke to him. How can we now tell him the child is dead? He may do something desperate. I understand that response on the part of the people around David. My, what was he doing last week when the child was merely ill? Now the child is dead. How can we tell him? And here we get some of this just beautiful, poignant detail that the writer is so skilled at, David noticed that his attendants were whispering among themselves. And he realized the child was dead. Is the child dead, he asked? Yes, they replied. He is dead. Then David got up from the ground. After he had washed, he put on lotions and changed his clothes. He went into the house of Yahweh and worshipped. Then he went to his own house, and at his request, they served him food, and he ate. His attendants asked him, Why are you acting this way? While the child was alive, you fasted and wept, but now that the child is dead, you get up and eat. And here is David's answer. While the child was still alive, I fasted and wept, and I thought, who knows? Yahweh may be gracious to me and let the child live. But now that he is dead, why should I go on fasting? Can I bring him back again? Notice the next part. I will go to him. What's that a reference to? After death. I will go to him, David says but he will not return to me. The child is dead, <coughs> dead and dead. And there's nothing David can do to change that. Nathan told him that this, this, this would be the first, the first of the consequences to David and his household from David's terrible, terrible sins. I will go to him. Can I bring him back again? I will go to him, but he will not return to me. See, even in hidden away here at the end of a paragraph in 2 Samuel, you get this, you get this hope. Because death is not our end. David's belief system isn't like Paul's more a thousand years later post Jesus post Pentecost post Jesus's resurrection all of that but still David in his heart knows enough about God to know that he will go to this child he will be reunited with this child if you asked, I'm sure if you asked him, what, can you tell me a bunch more? I got a bunch of questions about that. He's going to say, I don't know. I will go to him, but he will not return to me. 
Then David comforted his wife Bathsheba. Oh, we get her name again. That's like on time. I'm pretty sure, maybe close to it. Otherwise, she's just been the wife of Uriah. David comforted his wife Bathsheba, and he went to her and made love to her. She gave birth to a son, and they named him Solomon. This is Solomon. The second son born to David and Bathsheba. Not David's first son, not David's second son. The second son born to Solomon. You, in all the way through Scripture, there's a, you could do a study of second sons. There's this theme of second sons. Solomon is the second son of David. She gave birth to a son, and they named him Solomon. Yahweh loved him. Is that a surprise, that Yahweh loved Solomon? And because Yahweh loved him, he sent word. I love this. He sent word through Nathan, the prophet, to name the child Jedidiah. Jedidiah, great name. Beautiful. If you're stumbling around for a name for a child, Jedediah is a good name because it means loved by the Lord. Jedediah, loved by the Lord. You know, Solomon would go on to take Israel to heights that David never took Israel to. But Solomon will also plant the seeds of Israel's ultimate and complete departure from God because he was in his various marriages and concubinage, he will bring pagan gods and goddesses galore into Israel. 1 Kings 11. So now, David is married to Bathsheba. She is one of his wives, and one of his children is named Solomon. Okay? Um, Okay, and Jedediah. So he has, I guess, two, two names in that way. Now, interestingly, and you may wonder, like, what is this next part here for? Meanwhile, <laughs> Joab fought against Rabbah of the Ammonites and captured the royal citadel. So this is back here. This is that little bitty... Oh, I didn't take this stuff off. That's okay. All right, right there. See? Uh, Scott. That's Ammon. That's Rabah right there. That, if you go back to the beginning of chapter 11, that is where Joab's, David has sent his army to fight. And that's the city they besieged. That's the city where Uriah is killed by going up to the city walls during the siege and getting too close and ended up being, being felled. And now Joab captured that city. Joab then sent messengers to David, saying, I have fought against Rabbah and taken its water supply. That's always the key. Got to have water. 
Now muster the rest of the troops that besiege the city and capture it. Otherwise, I will take the city and it will be named after me. What is Joab saying to David? Rather crassly, I would put it this way. David, where the hell have you been? <laughs> You're supposed to be here with the troops. You better get the rest of the troops to get here, and you better take the city. Why? Because David is king. In their world, the king was the commander. David was not supposed to send the armies off to war and then sit around lounging on the roof of his palace, gazing at whomever he could see out there somewhere. So, verse 29, David mustered the entire army and went to Rabbah and attacked the city, and now they take it. Once they have the water supply, it's kind of like they can take it when they want to. But Joab waits for David to get there. David takes it, which is the rightful rule of the king. David took the king from their crown's head, and it was placed on his own. Oh, my, oh, my, oh, my weighed a talent of gold and it was set with precious stones I wonder how much of that David would have given away to have not done what he did when he took Bathsheba and then murdered her husband but you can't undo things like that can you you know there's a, I worked for a fellow once he took me to breakfast when I was brand new working for him he said Scott you know you're going to make mistakes we all make mistakes. My job is to help make sure that you don't make a mistake we can't fix. <laughs> that, you know, as I went on in life, I thought, wow, that's really wise. Because we all make mistakes. What you want to try to do is avoid, you know, the mistake that can't be fixed. And there's no way for David to fix the mistakes that he made, the sins he, against God that he committed. Now David took a great deal of plunder from the city and brought it all out and brought out the people who were there consigning them to work with saws and iron picks and axes, and he made them work at brick-making. He put them to work for the kingdom, this growing Israelite empire. David did this to all the Ammonite towns. I guess folks who work hard are going to be too tired to think about rebelling because that was something every conqueror would have to think about. Then he and his entire army returned to Jerusalem. Sort of full square from the beginning of chapter 11. All right. So before we go on to 13, any thoughts or questions from on my, our online folks or here? So Patty is pointing out that you can read in chapter about Joab that he he really does understand that he has something over on David, a big thing, right? He's he's what is he? He's I would he's shrewd and calculating. 
right? He could have taken the city and then made David angry, probably. And where would that have led? But instead, he says, okay, David, you need to come take this city. And now you're saying there's a dot, dot, dot after the end. And, and don't forget that you know that I know what you did. So, very good. All right, anything else? Okay. Then I have a family tree for you. Oh, those are always fun, aren't they? <laughs> I think this one is pretty simple. <laughs> you think, Scott, that's a joke. What is simple about that? Okay, so I'm going to come over here because this laser is going to reach all that way, I think. Okay, so there's David. These are all his sons. Um, these are all his wives spread out on this top line. And then the children born to these wives. Do I, you know, uh, what, notice this, this catch-all wives and concubines, sons and daughters. You don't, these lists you get, they're never complete. They're not meant to be complete. But the two you should keep an eye on are a Hinnom son by David whose name is Amnon. He is David's firstborn son. Not the child born to Bathsheba that died. Amnon is David's firstborn son, which makes him what? The prince, the heir apparent. This is Malachi, is how they do it on this chart, but gives birth to at least one boy and one girl. Maybe others, but these are the names we know. Absalom and his sister Tamar. They are brother and sister, full brother and sister, born to Malachi and David. So they are half-brother and half-sister to Amnon. Right? Do I have that correct? That's what matters. That's why it's circled in in yellow. <coughs> yes? Well, because you're going to want to know more about the relationships than just what okay. you simplify it like that. So the halves and the whole half-siblings, whole-siblings is going to play a major part in what's coming. Okay? So, chapter 13, verse 1, unless somebody's got anything else. Here we go. Oh. Course of time, there's that phrase again, right? We don't, it's in the course of time, sometime later. But you see the violence, Nathan said you've brought, yes? Oh, indicating the lineage of Jesus. So if you went to Matthew's genealogy, okay, you would find you would find the lineage of Jesus. So, yeah. That's not Nathan the prophet. That's another Nathan. You know, despite... There's a lot of names, aren't there? You know, really. <laughs> yeah. There's, there's, there's more than one Nathan in the world. 
There's Nathan the prophet. You meet other Nathans in Scripture. Okay, so in the course of time, Amnon, son of David. I'm going to leave this up here so you can help me keep straight here. Amnon, son of David, fell in love with Tamar. The beautiful sister of Absalom, son of David. So it's written the way it's written. And the way it's written tells us that Absalom, Amnon, right, is in love with his half-sister, Tamar, who has a full brother named Absalom. Okay? Get these names straight. You're going to need to know these names. You need to know particularly the names Amnon and Absalom. <laughs> so I point these things out to you so you can be ready. <laughs> verse verse three, 2. Amnon became so obsessed with his sister Tamar Granted, she's just his half-sister, but she's his sister. These, th this, I found actually a chart of forbidden relationships in Judaism. It's in the Law of Moses is where it comes from, Leviticus, Deuteronomy and stuff. Not surprisingly, this is a forbidden relationship. <laughs> there are others, but this is one of them. This one's forbidden everywhere. This is incest. You know, the word, the word incest comes from, um, simply, it comes from Latin. Incestum. Means, means not pure. And um, there wasn't such a neat catch-all word like incest, even at this time. And so it does, it, they, they didn't have a word to capture this as neatly in one word. But that's what we're talking about. She may only be his half-sister, but it's No. This is forbidden in the law of Moses. Oh, but he's obsessed with her. He's so obsessed with her that he made himself ill. She was a virgin. And it seemed impossible for him to do anything to her. Not with her. The Hebrew is to her. Like the fact that she's a virgin... Is the only thing standing in his way? What are you talking about, Amnon? You're obsessed with her. Get over it. <laughs> Do you ever see? Did you ever see? There's this little bitty clip. Now nah, it's about a five-minute routine from Bob Newhart when he's a psychiatrist. I'm sure it's on YouTube. Um, and uh, some woman comes in and she says she's got his problem and can he help her? And he says, yes, I can help you and it will cost you X. And so she begins to tell him about her strange problem, whatever it is. And he then says, well, just stop it. <laughs> just stop it. That's the sole content of his, you know, help to her. Just, just stop it. It's quite funny. And... <laughs> I can't do it. I'm not Bob Newhart. But that's what you want to say to Amnon. Amnon, do you would hope you would have a friend or somebody would say, but you see, who is Amnon? Oh, he's the firstborn son of the king. Oh, my. He is the heir apparent. 
He is the prince. Kings can do whatever they want. Perhaps princes can too. Kings can take whatever they want. Perhaps princes can too. David took what he wanted. Now Amnon, there's someone he desired. Three, now Amnon had an advisor named Jonadab, son of Shemaiah, David's brother. So this is David's brother, one of the sons that Samuel meets when he goes to Jesse's house in 1 Samuel 16. Jonadab was a very shrewd man. Is that a compliment? Not usually how we use the word. It's not a compliment, is it? Shrewd. He's a very shrewd man, a little bit like Joab in that, I guess. Jonadab was a very shrewd man. He asked Abnon, why do you, the king's son, look so haggard morning after morning? Won't you tell me? You're, you're not just Amnon, you're the king's son. Amnon said to him, Oh, I'm in love with Tamar. Oh, my brother Absalom's sister. He doesn't say it's his sister. Well, because that's like too confrontational. It's my brother's. He's as closely related to Absalom as he is to Tamar. He knows that. You know, sometimes you can't bring yourself to say the bare truth about things, can you? He can't. So, Jonadab says, he comes up with a plan. A little, he's shrewd, right? So he comes up with what? Is it just a plan? No, it's a scheme. Go to bed and pretend to be ill. When your father comes to see you, say to him, I would like my sister Tamar to come and give me something to eat. Let her prepare the food in my sight so I may watch her and then eat it from her hand. Oh, it will make me feel so much better. Please do this for me. I am your son. I am your heir. That's all. That's what I need. Just have her bring me some supper. Well... Some supper. I love hamming this stuff up sometimes. I can't help it. I didn't write this. These guys, these writers know what they're doing. So Amnon lay down and he pretended to be ill. When the king came to see him, Amnon said to him, that is David, I would like my sister Tamar to come and make some special bread in my sight so I may eat it from her hand. Now David doesn't sniff anything out. Question. How close is David to Amnon at this point? He seems, it doesn't, we, I grant you it doesn't say it, but he seems oblivious to how Amnon has been acting. Whatever, he doesn't put two and two together. What? Kids. That's a lot of kids. <laughs> You're right, I mean, really. So David sent word to Tamar at the palace, and he said, go to the house of your brother Amnon and prepare some food for him. So, as the dutiful daughter of David, the dutiful sister of Absalom and Abnon, the dutiful woman in this world, 
young she is, but still. Tamar went to the house of her brother Amnon, who was lying down. And she took some dough, and she kneaded it, and she made the bread in his side, and she baked it. Then she took the pan and served him the bread, but he refused to eat. Send everyone out of here, Amnon said. So everyone left him. Why does everyone obey him? The firstborn son, the heir, the prince. Then Amnon said to Tamar, Bring the food here into my bedroom so I may eat it from your hand. I imagine she's probably going, but yeah. And Tamar took the bread she had prepared and brought it to her brother Amnon in his, bed, in his bedroom. But when she took it to him to eat, he grabbed her and said, Come to bed with me, my sister. Now there's no need to cover anything up anymore. He knows, of course, she's his sister. He knows her relationships here. He doesn't care. No, my brother, she said to him. Notice we get so much more about Tamar than we got about Bathsheba. Interesting, huh? No, my brother, she said to him. Don't force me. Such a thing should not be done in Israel. Don't do this wicked thing. What about me? Where could I get rid of my disgrace? Nowhere. There's nowhere for her to go to get rid of her disgrace if he proceeds. She will be ruined for life in this culture. And what about you? You would be like one of the wicked fools in Israel. Please speak to the king. He will not keep me from being married to you. So she's trying to find a way out. But he refused to listen to her. And since he was stronger than she, he raped her. And there it is, just in plain English. There it is, just in plain Hebrew. He raped her. And look at verse 35. Is this oh, humanity, humanity? Then Amnon hated her. with intense hatred. In fact, he hated her more than he had loved her. And Amnon said to her, Get up and get out. What? It is an awful story. People, are, people can be quite awful, can't they? Oh, yes. This is an awful story. As the readers of Samuel... What is the genesis, the origin of this violence? David's taking of Bathsheba and murdering her husband. That's what Amnon grew up with. And now in the course of time, who has taken on his own account for himself? Amnon. Any sign that Amnon is repentant or sorry. No, instead, instantly, he hates his sister, sends her out, and she is ruined. Her whole life will now be spent in the palace. 
not to be married, not to have children. Everybody will know it's, she was right. She would be disgraced. Now, you have to, you have to leave. You can't say, why, why, why would that be? I'm not telling you, like, why. It's that way I'm telling you that's the way the ancient world for these people worked. No, that's Michael. Oh, Michael, okay. But Michael was, the one who really took Michael was first her father, who, who took her away from David, right? right? Who she loved when David took off, then gave her to Paltiel, and then David really took her because he said, I want her. But he never, they despised each other, and she died the rest of her life in the harem, right. in, in, in the women's quarters in the palace, the wives' quarters. So a little bit similar. A little bit similar. This is, that's going to be what is going to look what she says. She says, no, she said to him, sending me away would be a greater wrong than what you've already done to me. But he refused to listen to her. He called his personal servant and said, get this woman out of my sight and bolt the door after her. So his servant put her out and bolted the door after her. She was wearing an ornate robe for this was the kind of garment the virgin daughters of the king wore. Wow. She put ashes on her head, and she tore the ornate robe she was wearing. For tearing the robe is a sign of death, for that is what Amnon has inflicted upon her. And she's going to have to go running through the palace with the ashes on her head, the torn robe. Everybody's going to know she will be ruined. She put her hands on her head and went away, weeping, weeping aloud as she went. It's a very poignant story and written in such a way that you are supposed to feel Tamar's pain and you are supposed to be outraged at Amnon. You're supposed to be astonished by his behavior. But you might only be astonished at his behavior if you forgot what his own father did and if you forgot what Samuel told the Israelites in 1 Samuel chapter 8 about kings being takers. You know, the Israelites are not supposed to live this way. They are God's people. God spelled out for them at Mount Sinai how they were to live in relationship with God and in relationship with each other. They're not to be this way. You can't say to this, well, this is what, this, this is what everybody does, this is what all the kings do, and this is what all the princes do, and yada, yada, in the ancient world. No, you can't say that because these are God's people. I will be your God. You will be my people. These people are to be judged by a different standard. They know what God's law is. Everybody doesn't. Most people don't. You know, the Ten Commandments and the Law of Moses, were they given to the world? Was the Ten Commandments given to the world? No, given to the Israelites at the foot of Mount Sinai. Not intended for the world. 
intended for the Israelites because they were the ones who would know how they were to live in relationship and hence be the ones through whom God would redeem humanity and renew all of creation. That was the way it was supposed to work. And they agreed at Mount Sinai. Yes, 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 we'll do our part, we'll do our part. And they have failed, failed time and again, time and again, time and again. And here David, who was like Cain, when God says to Cain, there's a monster outside your door waiting to grab you. That was David. And now it's Tamar. I mean, now it's Amnon. And, oh, you know, one of the consequences of being king or the king's firstborn son is that people are probably unwilling to tell you Nathan was a brave prophet to go and confront David in that way, wasn't he? Kings aren't different than other people in this way. They like yes men. There's a great story of the prophet Micaiah who was called up by King Hezekiah and Jehoshaphat, I think. And he was going to tell them the truth, even though they had like 400 other prophets who told them what they wanted to hear. Micaiah, it says, stood strong in the counsel of the Lord and told them the truth. I think it was Jehoshaphat and Ahab. See, my brain is trying to figure out the end. Okay? Scott, yes. you watch Downton Abbey? What did the downstairs folks know? Everything. And when the downstairs folks knew, how much of that do you think got out to the town? Where did the downstairs folks live? In town. So yeah, people find out. People know. People know. People know. And remember what God said to David. You know, you've been all secret about this. What's coming to you now is this violence, this sword, will be in broad daylight. In broad daylight. People will know, David. And this is only the beginning. You, you know, th this is the precipitate act when Amnon rapes Tamar. But it's only the beginning. Only the beginning of what is to come. And it is... It's a story about actions having consequences. Forgiveness, yes. God forgave David his sin. But that forgiveness does not mean the consequences of those actions go away. Okay? So, any other comments? Oh, yeah, you know, I mean, we kind of know how people have babies, right? So somebody's unlikely to have, you know, 20 sons and no daughters, but the daughters get left off. Why? Because it's a patriarchal culture. The daughters, the, da the daughters don't really matter in this culture. That is what is striking about Matthew's genealogy, which you would expect to have only men in Jesus' genealogy.
but instead you get women as well. You get a different Tamar. You get Ruth. And more. So, yeah, but that's why. You know, it's like when you see the lists, short lists, big lists, genealogies, don't view them as if they're supposed to be complete. They're not complete. They all tell a story. They all connect the people with their past. Who is their God? The God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Father, son, grandson, on we go. That's how they connect themselves. They're, they're part of that family that began with Abraham. And that's why Matthew gives us this, us this genealogy, because as Christians, we are part of that family. Not via DNA, but by faith, as with Ruth, who is in Jesus' genealogy. She was not born with the blood of Abraham in her veins. She became part of God's people because she chose to. And she came to worship Yahweh. Patty. Well, I, okay, so Pat, I got a question online. If she hadn't been cast out of the room, meaning she was going to have to go somewhere, okay, in her state, right? I mean, you can't expect her to leave that room and be normal Tamar. Would people, other people have known? I think she's hoping, she hoped that if she wasn't cast out of the bedroom, there might be some way that it could be contained, the knowledge of this. That makes sense to me. But, but Amnon won't even give her that, right? He casts her out, and she is so... She, because she understands what this act that has been committed against her has done has ruined her entire life. And there is nothing that she can do about it that she can't help but grieve. In a way, when she does the ashes and tears her robe, she's, she, she's expressing her grief over her own death. That sounds weird and wild in 2023, but that's what's going on in this story. As she goes through the palace, carrying the disgrace, people know... I think people would have found out anyway, you know? People find, people find, isn't, isn't that the deal about cover-ups? You know, they always get, they always get uncovered. Well, Jonadab, and whose brother is Jonadab? David. David is Jonadab's brother who came up with this whole nasty little scheme. Uncle Joe, yes, Uncle Joe. You kind of wonder what they said, actually. In real life, did they really go around and say, hey, Jonadab, or hey, hey, Elishima, or did they call him like, hey, Joe, hey, Eli, whatever? <laughs> I don't know. Okay, so we're going to stop there. When we come back next week, and you don't want to miss this, I'm telling you, these are, these are wow. So who... Who do you think is going to enter 
into this. Absalom, of course. Tamar is his sister, not just his half-sister. They grew up as full-blood brother and sister. And what is Absalom going to have to say about this? What, a lot. What is Abs Absalom going to do? A lot. So, come back next week. <laughs> would, you, would, you pray, would you pray with me? Gracious Lord, we are blown away by, by the nature of Scripture. You know, it's people, we talk about the Bible as just like one book, but it's not. It's a library. So we can read this, this psalm, this song of David about his repentance, Psalm 51. And at the same time, we have these stories so well told. that pull us into the story of David, and now the story of Tamar, and Abnam, and Amnon, and soon Absalom. Help us understand that these are our stories too. These are the stories Jesus read. These are the scriptures that Jesus read himself. And let us, let us hear in them your truth about the about the consequences of sin, even when we are forgiven. And help us strive every day to simply love you and to love others more and more. All this we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.